1: Hi, folks. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest for this conversation today is Scott Satterwitz, one of the authors of A Punk House in the Deep South, The Oral History of 309, co-authored with Arian Commentbus, and published by the University Press of Florida in 2021. Told in personal interviews, A Punk House in the Deep South is the collective story of a punk community and an unlikely town and region, a hub of radical counterculture that drew artists and musicians from throughout the conservative South and earned international renown. The house at three hundred nine Sixth Avenue has long been a crossroads for punk rock, activism, veganism, and queer culture in Pensacola, a quiet Gulf Coast city at the border of Florida and Alabama. In this book, residents of 309 narrate the colorful and often comical details of communal life in the crowded and dilapidated house over its 30-year existence. Each voice in the book adds the picture of a lively community that worked together to provide for their own needs while making a positive lasting impact on their surrounding area. Together, these participants show that punk is more than music and teenage rebellion. It is about alternatives to standard narratives of living, acceptance for the marginalized in a rapidly changing world, and building a sense of family from the ground up. And then a little bit more about our guest today. Uh, Scott Satterwhite is a historian, educator, and journalist who teaches writing and literature at the University of West Florida. So welcome, Professor Satterwhite, to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm thrilled to talk with you today. Um, So before we dive into the project, the book, Uh, that we're discussing, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about you?
0: Uh, Sure. Well, as you said, I teach at the University of West Florida, but uh, besides that, I have been active involved with the punk scene here in pensacola since i moved here in 1995 I, I used to be in the navy and i was stationed over here and that's how i ended up in pensacola and it was yeah just a a great place and the scene here was incredibly welcoming i started writing a zine uh, right around that same time and just became active uh, with this and eventually moved into 309 as you know there's more about me yes. too. You know, I have uh, two beautiful kids and uh, uh, my wife, uh, she lived over at 309, uh, Lauren Anzaldo, She's in the book too. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff, but that's enough.
1: <laughs> oh, we'll learn more, I'm sure. <laughs> right. as <we> go through. <laughs> that's the purpose of the um, interview. <laughs> yes, to give people sneak preview here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Uh, So a little bit more to you know, just to give a little, some background for our listeners, can you tell us how this book came about, right? What's the origin story of this book? Um, you already kind of got at this a little bit by talking about your relationship, but how did this idea of conducting these oral history interviews with formal 309 residents come about?
0: Okay, well, how the book came about was in the spring of 2020, uh, a magical spring. We were teaching a class on public history at the University of West Florida in January of that month, uh, January of that year. And we had, I say we, uh, we with the 309 Punk Project, which is an organization that I'm a part of, we had helped curate an exhibit over at the TT, former TT Wentworth Museum downtown. Now it's the Pensacola Museum of History. They had to rename it when they found out the the uh, uh, the namesake was in the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> so they found a new name for it, which is more fitting, the Pensacola Museum of History. Anyway, uh, they had an exhibit over at the museum. And it was on, They wanted to create an exhibit at the museum on punk rock in Pensacola. And this exhibit was called Punksacola. And they asked us if we would help curate this. Well, that inspired a professor over at the museum. I'm sorry, a professor here at the university, a man named Jamin Wells. Uh, to come talk to us over at the 309 Punk Project. He knew I worked at the university and uh, knew that I had lived over at the 309 and was, being, and was active with this project and thought that we might be able to work uh, on something mutually beneficial to us. And the uh, so he was teaching a class on oral histories and thought that it would be a good idea if we were able to round up about a, a little more than a dozen people to talk to who lived in the house. And we were looking for a uh, a wide swath of people from the time that it began until the current era, and as diverse a group of people as possible. And with that, you know, this is where it began. So we did the interviews, and uh, we gathered around 15 people. 13 end up making it into the book, but we gathered about thir- or 15 people and students went out and did the interviews. And the last interview was finished around the middle of March, 2020. Uh, I think you probably know what also happened in the middle of March, 2020. Uh, Everything stopped, everything shut down. The end product of what we were thinking we were gonna be getting with this was going to be a comb-bound transcript of all of these interviews. One copy, or two of them, uh, one copy would go to the University of West Florida's archives and to the historic archives, uh, which is what they do with a lot of these uh, oral history classes. And then they were going to give the other one to us over at the 309 Punk Project so we could keep for our historic archives that we're building over in the house. So this was the ultimate goal with all of this. And we were really excited to get this comb-bound book. But then everything fell apart. And then when everything fell apart with the class, I personally was really worried that uh, that all of this great data, all of this incredible, these incredible interviews that people had done, were we're just going to get lost with so many things that were happening that semester? Because you, you remember, I teach at the university too, so I knew how my classes were going, and I knew that trying to patch people together and calm their their <laughs> their nerves uh, as the world was falling apart in front of them. Uh, I had a vested interest in making sure that that we finished these transcripts and we got them done. So we got all the interviews done, and then uh, some of the transcripts were completed, but we had to finish a lot of them, do all the typing and all that stuff. So we did that, and then uh, as we were working on these these transcripts, I realized that what we had was something that was really interesting. I'm uh, falling in love with all these stories from people I haven't talked to in years in many instances. And, uh, and they're talking to people that they don't even know, uh, because we're not actually conducting these interviews. These are all with students. So they're being a lot more forthright, probably more than they would if they were talking to me. And they're, and the students didn't really know exactly what they were dealing with. Uh, They didn't really know the, the punk scene that well. They, you know, this is, the life in this house isn't something that you could just go on Wikipedia and look up. Uh, so they are asking these interesting questions that are kind of going all over the place, but it forces the readers, I'm sorry, it forces the interviewers to really over-explain themselves. And as we're looking at all of this information, you know, i uh, talking to my friend Aaron Cometbuston uh, about that because he's interviewed in the book too. And, we're talking about it i throw the idea to him say hey i think we have some pretty good information in here and i think we might be able to work on a book Uh, and i told him that you're really good with finishing projects you start and i'm feeling kind of manic right now uh and uh let's go for it (laughs) let's see if we could do this uh and lo and behold here we are
1: i love that like i was wondering who was doing the interviews Mm because i did notice what you were talking about, like things were explained very well. And Mm -hmm. that's really fascinating to hear um, that the students were the ones, you know, kind of in those interactions taking the lead on that. Mm -hmm. So I love that. That's such a cool, like pedagogical collaborative way of doing it. Um,
0: You think about it too, from a, from a student perspective that these are undergraduate students too. They're not graduate students. And most of these interviews or most of these histories disappear into some Google Drive or disappear into some yeah. uh, <laughs> some archive that you'll never see again. Uh, what I think of when I think of these projects generally is that very last scene in Indiana Jones in, of Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, when they go through hell and back to find all this information and or find the Ark of the Lost Covenant. And once they finally find it, uh, then after all these people died, they fought the Nazis, they put it up in some box and then it gets stowed into some nowhere land in the middle of an archive that no one will ever be able to search for or find again. And that's usually what happens to these kind of things, not intentionally, but just, you know, it often just happens like that because you move on to the next semester and yeah, to have this come to a book, turn into a book. Every one of the students can write now write on their CVs that they have a published chapter in an academic book, and that's a that's a pretty big deal. I mean, it's a big deal for yeah you know, for for me. You know, it's a big deal for me if I were to get a chapter in an academic book. Much less if you're an undergraduate student. So they have something really nice to go on to graduate school, and if not, then they still get a book. <laughs> so. Yeah,
1: and in that process, you know. Did you feel like you learned what you felt like worked or didn't sort of in that process? Like, in other words, do you have any kind of advice based on all these experiences for those of us who are, you know, possibly interested in presenting oral histories in some kind of format like this?
0: You know, uh, I wondered about that with the class, if there were better ways that we could have prepared them to do these interviews, to be honest, I'm not sure how you would prepare somebody for uh, for this. And and it's not really just the punk scene itself. I mean, you can, you can definitely watch a number of documentaries on punk, or you can read as much as you can. Or even in our instance, the punk house, uh, there's a, a funny episode of Portlandia where they go to a punk museum. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that might be close to it. Uh, but other than that, you know, it's hard for me to imagine what it would be like unless you were possibly a hippie who lived in a commune back in the late 60s. That might be the closest thing that I can think of. But otherwise, this isn't something you could easily go on Wikipedia and find out about and do any kind of research. And, and the book that we've written is literally the only book uh, that's been written about it from a nonfiction perspective. There is the book by Abby Banks. So She's a photographer, and she actually has a chapter on 309 in that book. But there's that's a, a photograph book on on punk houses called Punk House Interiors and Anarchy. And then there is the novel that Aaron Cometbus wrote called Double Deuce, and that's about living in a punk house. There's another one, too, it's really interesting, too. It's by a guy, his name is um, uh, Muhammad Michael Knight, and he wrote a book called The Taqua Cores, and it's about an an imaginary Islamic punk scene that he created. He was Muslim and he was wondering what it was, what a punk scene would look like. And he created it. And he, I think he did a pretty good job of recreating what a punk, what a punk house looks like, except for, you know, the women are all wearing hijabs and, uh, and burqas in some instances, but with punk patches on them, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting book. Uh, but nonetheless, outside of those books that there's not really a lot of other things that you could see, it's different than living in the dorms. You know, it's li- different than living in, uh, than renting a house from somebody or renting a room, so, so in that instance, I don't know how you would really prepare for it. But going back to your question, though, it's, uh, I would say try and do as much research as you can, and also try to remember that you're talking about people's lives uh, to be respectful as much as you can. But you know, it depends on the situations and depends on the scenarios. Uh, you know, in this book, we had a number of people that asked us questions about the bathrooms in the house, and I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, I mean, it rolled off; a, it, it didn't bother us, uh, or if it did, I didn't notice anything. But it'd be funny if you're reading a book on the civil rights movement and you're interviewing Ralph He Said, "So, I understand that when during the Selma march, that there was a number of people in this house. So, who went to the bathroom first? <laughs> was it you, or was it you know this other major leader of the movement?" Yeah, no, those questions never would be asked. But... But nonetheless, it was it was fun. I don't know how you prepare for it (laughs) It's a short answer.
1: That's fine. That's interesting, too. I was just like (laughs) curious, like, hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I, I just found that really cool. And speaking of so actually going back to this punk house that we're talking about here. Right. Can you kind of tell our listeners here, you know, a bit about like Pensacola's punk scene and the, you know, larger relationship there to the 309 Yeah, house. sure.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well, the punk scene itself has been around since the late 1970s here in Pensacola, and that's a bit of a surprise to people, especially when they ride into Pensacola, because it certainly doesn't look like a place that would have a, a long-standing punk scene, but it does. Uh, it has a number of venues that have been around for uh, somewhere around for a long time it just maybe recently closed in a couple of years but we have have a pretty long history in the punk scene and with the national punk scene but then also with the local punk scene and as all of that is coming through touring bands came through just about every touring band from at least the early mid eighties came through here at some point or another and played at some of these really small dives, everybody from uh, black flag agnostic front and, you know, tons of other bands uh, from those areas and then modern bands too, of course. Yeah. You know, so it's had a long history with, with uh, the punk scene and where 309 comes into it is that 309 was the house where a lot of people at one of the main clubs here in sluggos lived Uh, the main club was sluggos and sluggos have been around for yeah dozens of years for at least in some former another with some lapses in time from 1987 until maybe 88 until um maybe like three or four years ago. It closed about three or four years ago and moved up to Chattanooga. But nonetheless, you know, they have a really, really long history here. But a lot of the people that were involved in the punk scene at that time, and really the people that created the punk scene. So anybody who is a punk in Pensacola owes their punkness uh, to a handful of people. And among those handful of people are all the folks that were the ones who started Sluggos and were a part of Sluggos. And those people all lived over in 309
1: gotcha appreciate that that kind of helps you know paint this picture here Mm -hmm. um and how have you seen that like seen change over that history i guess like just kind of as a follow-up question like what do you what have you seen over the last few decades uh that's changed or stayed the same Mm -hmm. in your experience you know since I've
0: been here, but also as a historian too. You know, with, the, as I mentioned this, with the 309 Punk Project, we do a number of different things, but one of them is the pro, you know, we saved the house itself, the house from being destroyed, as you'll read in the book. Uh, so we are able to save the house from being destroyed. And one of the ideas with this is we are going to create a a punk museum, a museum to punk and then a historic archive a recording studio and an artist in residence program well in the historic archive we've been able to create a lot of, or be able to archive a number of different flyers and zines and records from those uh, from periods before I moved here, long before I moved here so when I look at the scene and just from talking to people and knowing people from those eras, then I definitely can tell a really, really strong difference in the scenes. Uh, I will say that like Pensacola itself, that what's happening on a national level is likely happening here in Pensacola too. So for just about any national issue that people are talking about or is a part of a bigger national discussion, interestingly, it's also happening here in Pensacola too. So uh, the city isn't divorced from the outside world and the same is with punk. So all of the changes that were taking place in punk were also happening here in Pensacola. The 80s punk scene is very is uh, very closely attached to the hardcore scene of the 80s and had all the great things about it but also the negative things too uh, but as it moves into the 90s then it took on the the flare of the the grunge eras and you know Nirvana and all that kind of stuff you know so it had a lot of that kind of feel to it and then the mid-90s you know with the all-ages shows 80s and 90s you know with the all-ages shows that those are all a big part of it too if i had to say the biggest change though if somebody were to go to a punk show in 1985 and then step into into the present day the the punk scene here in pensacola is a lot more political than it was back in the 80s and it's more political in the ways that you would expect maybe for a uh, for a progressive town and i would necessarily call pensacola as a, whole a Progressive town politically, but it uh, but the punk scene certainly yes yeah you know, the punk scene is uh, certainly very progressive and uh, and it is very uh, it it represents you know it represents those larger politics of punk so I would say that right now we are much closer to a Bikini Kill like scene than a Agnostic Front uh, type scene. If, you, if that helps <laughs> to give you an idea of what the scene looks like. So it's more political and more uh, progressive in, in those ways, but still with all the trappings that every other punk scene has good and bad, and you got great people, and you got people that you wish would do things differently. But that's us. <laughs>
1: It's how it goes. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that actually leads really well to one of my uh, other questions, which is sort of like what you were just getting at about that relationship between like the punk scene and sort of like ongoing issues politically or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, Like with these 309 residents in Pensacola, you were talking about how, for instance, there was a strong relationship to sluggers and, you know, what have you seen based on these interviews and whatnot, what have these residents of the 309 been involved in, in terms of business or activist pursuits?
0: Okay, uh, Okay, sure. Yeah. So for uh, activist stuff, uh, the people in 309 have been active in just about everything that you can imagine. If you look at the book, you, they start off talking about protests in the Ku Klux Klan, which makes the book kind of interesting, too, because... If you look at the history of punk, with the exception of maybe some songs that joke about it a little bit, and with the Ramones, uh, but then also maybe with uh, other bands like MDC and others where they talk about KKK, but it's not necessarily a direct thing that's happening in many of them. Maybe for MDC it was, but anyway, uh, in Pensacola that it was a thing that was here, not as active as is like in the 1920s or 1930s, but there certainly was a history, as the book shows, with not only the the Klan protest, because they came here a number of times to try and recruit people, but also because the museum itself that that our Punxsicola exhibit was in had to change its name because of the founder of the the museum, the namesake of the museums later found to be not just a member of the Klan, but was the exalted Cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan uh, when it formed here. So the actual founder and literally wrote the history of the Ku Klux Klan in Pensacola so there is absolutely that history that was here and to have a book on punk rock that talks about that kind of stuff is a little unusual it's not usually the fair for this so I would say it's not like we were protesting the Klan all the time but it uh, but there were a lot of different anti-racist protests that were taking place in the eight or in the mm, yeah in the 80s 90s and then up until the present day of course you know with um, with uh, Black Lives Matter and with a lot of the protests that have happened not just since George Floyd but also with uh, many other instances that took place, going back to at least 2011 and in Pensacola, but then going further back too, for sure. So, uh, I've been involved with that anti racist protesting, civil rights groups, and uh, veganism, of course. That was really one of the big things people ask about in the book uh, about the music and what music we listen to, and music comes up. But, you know, as you know from reading it, the one thing that interestingly, doesn't come up that often is music. Uh, music doesn't really come up much. People aren't talking about bands that they're listening to or they're talking about having to stop playing their music because the police are coming in to tell them to shut them down or something. There aren't really those kind of stories in there. there you're going to find more stories about people putting gravy on mashed potatoes and learning how to make vegan food <laughs> and, uh, and that kind of stuff uh, than you are almost anything else. So veganism becomes a really big part of the book and going into one of your other uh other things you, and i should mention too the war protests were a really really big part of the of the punk scene throughout its period whether it's going back to the the original gulf war or to you know, to the, the the reagan 80s but then definitely since nine eleven and since the uh the war on terrorism and the war against iraq uh that a lot of these were were really, really big in in our punk scene, in particular with the people that lived in 309. So those are some things there. But with going into veganism, the, that led to a number of interesting experiments. In the house, we tried to start a little vegan restaurant in the house to see how that would work. And you know, we just wanted to experiment with the food. A lot of the people were just becoming vegan, but were tired of eating only mac and cheese or pizza without cheese on it. So they wanted to. You know, stretch their stretch their uh, their brain and try and find some new way to make some food that would be appetizing and we read this book that w- it was practically our Bible over at the house this book called the new farm cookbook and it's this hippie cookbook for vegans it was written in the 70s and has all these really funny illustrations and stories but but the food was good it's really good typical Southern foods, uh, and we were always making gravy, uh, always making something with gravy, whether you're making couscous and pouring gravy on it, whether you're making fake fried chicken with gravy on it, not necessarily the most healthy diet, but it was still this big vegan uh, love affair uh, that we had and that translated into food not bombs so we were making food not bombs and the folks at food not bombs probably in those first years didn't know that the great delicacies that they were getting as everybody was experimenting with all sorts of things like uh, wheat balls instead of meatballs uh, or you know, many other different things that we would try but you know for food not bombs being one of the activist things then we ended up through a, a little bit of a process we ended up starting this restaurant uh, that was literally across the street from from 309. It's a place that's still in existence too. It's called End of the Line Cafe. And how that worked is a number of us worked over at End of the Line when it was another place called Van Gogh's. And the old owners were looking to get rid of it. We were doing punk shows over at Van Gogh's and we kind of ran it into the ground uh, doing punk shows. So all the yuppies that were coming in to get their lattes and pretend they were watching friends <laughs> living in that scene with, over at that coffee shop at central perk uh that we changed that dynamic by <laughs> switching out more of the coffee and bringing in more pbrs and uh and then for you know the place smells <laughs> like beer and smells like a lot of punks have been there the owners couldn't find anyone else to sell it to so they asked us if we'd be interested in buying the place so they're nice enough to sell it to us on credit and or not credit but um yeah, yes they, they finance us uh for this and we bought the place from them and experimented, you know, we started doing the stuff we were doing in the house when we had the rest fake restaurant in the house uh, and did the same stuff over at the, over at the real restaurant with a license and created what became End of the line cafe. So, and End of the line is a really, really great place. Uh, totally different than in those first days. I mean, almost completely different. If you went to that time machine, you wouldn't even recognize it, but, uh, Except for if you see a couple graffiti things that are left over from the old days, that the, uh, the current owner won't change because she was one of us, uh, one of the original owners of. It. But it's yeah, I'd say that's probably one of the biggest things. You know, they came out of. They came out of the house. But besides that, you yeah, know, I mentioned two other things. Uh, there's a number of uh, tattoo parlors uh, in particular. is one Hula Moon came out of there and that's been around for a number of years, a really, really great place. Uh, and I mentioned the venues that have been around too, Slugos in particular, but a couple other venues. Uh, but otherwise we have a bookstore that's here in Pensacola. It's been around for about 13 years. And where that came about was through a, a project that sent books to people in prison and it's called the prison book project. And Through the Prism Book Project, we. Uh, we needed to open up a bookstore when our uh, other parent bookstores, a place called Subterranean Books, had closed. So when that closed, we needed to open up a bookstore to be able to do the project. And that project has been, the project itself has been going on for about 20 years, the Prison Book Project. In fact, we even recently got a mayor, uh, a proclamation from the mayor about a year or so ago, uh, re- making January 16th Open Books Prison Book Project Day. So it's pretty cool uh, to go from a point where they wanted to kick us out. Several years ago, and now we're getting proclamations from the mayor. So, you know, things change. That's the same with the cafe, too. Uh, things change, and that you get new lives, the longer you stick around and people see you differently when they notice that you just have tenacity and can somehow stick around. So the Prison Books has been around for 20 years now, and that started in 309. End of the Line Cafe has been around for 19 years, and that started in 309. Food not Bombs is actually still around, although it's diff- run by different people, but it's uh, but you know that's still going on. The Tattoo Parlor has also been around for over 20 years now. So the businesses really are institutions in a lot of ways. And a lot of that came from those, but also came from the activism that, that we were doing too.
1: Cool. Now I just want to go next time I'm going that way to Pensacola and check out some of these different sites yeah. and kind of see it I don't know, get that lived experience of it. That's really interesting. You can get a so book. Many,
0: like some... you said. You get a book and then you can go get mm-hmm. a tattoo and then you can go to uh get a tofu BLT and you will have lived <laughs> the experience. You know, uh-
1: <laughs> I have been wanting another tattoo, so yeah. if there's there a good go. time, yeah. <laughs> just go check it out. But Game yeah, that's really listening. cool. <laughs> yes, hit me up. <laughs> I uh, that's interesting because it's like it's very much a place making institution in that way that yeah. like you know which is really interesting that how big that community is um, and also speaking of which right like getting to some of the actual people in this community, you know you talked about at the beginning how diverse the range of voices in this book um, is and i I loved it like there are so many different personalities, so many different like tattoo artists or you know different types of you know backgrounds that everyone had so can you kind of talk to us a little bit about who some of these folks are that offered their perspectives and what do you feel like you know they bring to the table uh, like for instance as you mentioned at the beginning in your case you know a lot of folks i noticed have ended up there in some way through the military mm-hmm. f- family or otherwise since the navy town so can you kind of give us some highlights of the people that are uh, discussed in the book.
0: Uh, Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I, as I mentioned, I was in the Navy and I got stationed here in 1995 and that's how I got here. I didn't even know Pensacola for anything. I was just, I was with the Marines and over in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And I just wanted to get as far away from there as I could. And I, uh, Found the school that was opened up over here in Pensacola. And it was Aerospace Physiology Technician School. I had no idea what the job was, uh, and it's a big name, but the, there's no applicability to the job anywhere else uh, outside of <laughs> outside of the military. Uh, so. But I went to the school and that got me to Pensacola, but it wasn't my intention to stay over here. My intention was just to go here for school and thought, no, Florida would be cool. So I I was going to go here. And then in the Navy, they give you this thing called the dream sheet, which is you write down the three places you want to go and they'll try their best to get you uh, as close as they can to it. So I put down San Diego, San Francisco, and Seattle. And then I get my orders and it says, Pensacola. (laughs) You guys didn't even try. Uh, So yeah apparently it worked out obviously i'm here that was 1995 and was it 26 years later you know i'm still here so i liked it enough and it was in large part it was due to the punk scene here Uh, the punk scene was just so welcoming it was really the people here were really nice and I, i just immediately drew a bond to to the folks here in a way that probably wouldn't have happened in other places i imagine for a lot of other places that that you know if you're in the navy then people will look at you a little bit differently or expect you to uh maybe be a a jarhead and you're just going to go bust up things. You're going to want to get into the mosh pit and get a little too violent because you've been trained to be a little too violent. And uh, and here in Pensacola, it seemed that almost everybody had some connection to the Navy. If you notice in the book, uh, around at least a third of the people in there have some connection to the Navy that they mentioned in the book too. Uh, so that includes Barrett who's living in the house right now. Uh, Barrett, he's the last person who was interviewed in the book and the last person who was there in the house before we had the transition, but is back in the house now. Uh, Barrett, his dad was a, uh, I think a captain in the Navy. Uh, so he's a pretty high ranking official in the, in the Navy. So Barrett comes from, yeah, from that background. You wouldn't tell by you know, talking to him or, or anything, but yeah, he's, yeah that's pretty high-ranking military person and then um uh jen you know her uh, dad was uh connected to the navy i'm not sure if he was in the navy or not but he was connected to the navy as well uh rhyme who's the is the uh, singer for the band the spikes of pipe bomb his dad was retired navy and he was in the air force too He mentioned in the book but hopefully i didn't out him too much but you know he was in the air force as well uh joined and then kind of got out and you know, and then did his own thing, uh, of course. But uh, but that wasn't what brought him here. But anyway, I'm going too far into that. He's going to get mad that I even mentioned this. Uh, so um, there's that. But then a bunch of other folks were a part of that, too. And that's one of the things I found about the book that was interesting was not only the military connections, but really it helps to dispel a lot of the ideas of people being all these trust fund uh, folks that people ask about. People in the punk scene, especially people that are living alternate lifestyles and are living in a situation like this about, oh, you must have something to fall back on. At one point, we counted uh, the people that were living in the house. And in uh, one point when I lived there, every single person in the house had a parent who had been in prison or was currently in prison. Uh, and that's... Uh, you know that doesn't speak of the of the trust funds. You know, and that doesn't speak to what people normally think of when they think of people that are living a lot of these alternate lifestyles. Because there is that tendency, especially for a lot of punks, to be thinking about everybody as, as, uh, you know, having some other fallback plan. And that was not the case for almost anybody in the book. Uh, just about everybody had some kind of military background. Uh, whether it's them personally, or that their parents were there, and that's why they got here, and and for the most part, too, that you don't join the military if you're rich, you know, you don't join the military if you're well off. You join it to get uh, a possibly get a slice of the middle class lifestyle, and that sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. Yeah, you know, but Terry uh, Johnson, her dad was in the Air Force, I believe she said, And that's what brought her from, to the South, and you know, she's you know, a really interesting person too. She was the one who had. Uh, started sluggos so she plays such a major role in the story but she also plays a major role too in a couple ways that not only did she start sluggos but when one of the main characters in the book scott cowgill is in a really tragic house fire that nearly killed him he barely mentions it in the house too it's kind of funny or in the story he uh he mentions it briefly but he was nearly killed in a house fire and and they leave it up to terry and Raimo d to actually talk about what happened to him so what terry largely terry did was she had found a place for him to recuperate and was looking around for a place and 309 turned out to be the place there was a room for rent it was safe and it was close by to downtown so where the people who were working in suggos could check on him and everybody could be in touch with him and then when he's in better shape than he could he could go back to work over at Sluggo's too. so And the, the rent was incredibly cheap too. So was, I think if I remember right, when, when I first moved into the house in 1999, it was $395 for a two-story, five-bedroom house. So we were paying nothing <laughs> for rent, uh, hardly anything. So yeah, so it was possible to live very cheaply. And Terry was the one who was responsible for, uh, for doing that. And then once she... Uh, had got scott into the house then eventually other people that were living into the house they moved out and then another person who lived uh, or worked at slugos they moved in and then somebody else moved out and then another person from slugos moved in and eventually they just put a lock on the house and then it was just their house and then that's really when it became uh quote unquote 309 even though they didn't call it that for a long time uh but that's when it became the house that was the punk house so terry plays a big role in there and then not only does she help with securing the house but terry's actually the one who came up with the idea for a securing 309 as a as the punk museum she came up to me one day after it, it, the rumor got around to in the town that that the house is going to get destroyed and she comes up to me in the bar that she worked in sluggos uh, she came up to me in sluggos and said scotty i got this great idea we're going to save the house and this is how we're going to do it we are going to buy the house and when i say me uh, we, I don't mean just me and you, I mean me, you, and every punk in the whole world, we're going to buy the house. We're going to all chip in a couple dollars and we're all going to buy the house. And it's going to be the house that every punk owns. How does that sound? And, I mean, of course it's a crazy idea. That's logical by any means, uh, but she has such a, enthusiastic personality that you just really want to catch on to that enthusiasm so i'm like yes i'll join your army terry <laughs> i'll do this uh let's go do this uh before you know terry moves away to chattanooga and then we're just kind of stuck with this Be uh, now what do we do uh, but it worked out in the end uh, but we wouldn't be here without terry so she played a really really big role and then i just mentioned a couple other folks in there too uh there's uh, my wife i mentioned uh, lauren and i met her in the house and uh, not as we weren't dating or anything at that time but she just was traveling from South Florida and she wanders into the house with one of her friends who she came up here with. And that was the first time we met was as I was writing uh, on my computer, working on my zine. Uh, and then she comes into the house One of our other roommates said, Hey, Scotty, this is Lauren. We got to go to a potluck, but just wanted to introduce. Hi, hi. And That was it. So several years later, <laughs> uh, the rest is in the book, but, uh, there's uh, also Raimo D you know is the singer for the Spikes of Palm, an incredible singer songwriter too uh, it's Gabe, the tattoo artist uh, who, uh, The stories in the in the book are really <laughs> really gross but they're uh, really really funny stories i love them and uh, and then uh, Gloria Diaz uh, Gloria is, Gloria has a really good pic- uh, picture of the house that she's described in the in the book uh, she's really an awesome person and uh, has recreated what it really looked like in the house, especially in the period when uh, when I was there. She's gone on now. She works over in, in New York. She went back to college, like a lot of us did. Uh, she went back to college and she went to uh, get her master's in public health, and now uh, is an MPH over in, over in uh, New York. I think she works for Columbia, or she used to work for Columbia University. So uh, she's done pretty well for herself. And uh, there's Eliza Espy, uh, who is a mainstay in the Pensacola punk scene. Uh, they've been really, really active in, in doing shows right now, too, uh, safe shows, if you will, uh, trying to get people not to do public events, uh, public shows where we're spreading COVID because that was a problem here for a little while and not just COVID, but then also people doing punk shows despite all the pandemic. So they set up the shows that were in uh, their house, eventually became their house and uh, their. are really really great you can check them out online too it's the bug house is what it's called where they live uh and it's a really awesome thing to check out the shows are really really great and it's nice to be able to stay connected to the punk scene without getting a disease that will kill you and then there's barrett of course and Barrett's living in the house right now and he has a really interesting story that kind of brings the brings the book to an end and then aaron and i are in there too so so i think that's everybody i'm probably missing somebody so forgive me if i'm oh and jen knight who started end of the line cafe uh she has a really really uh great great piece uh, she along with a number of started End of the line uh, but she's the mainstay who stuck around uh with it and jen is doing really great stuff and just recently bought the, the building uh, end of the line so lots of success uh, stories that are in there not all success you know but just like everything we're we're still here so
1: Yeah, it's interesting to hear like where everyone ended up, especially because like you were talking about earlier, you know, a lot of these folks living in this house were working a lot, you know, paying, like you're saying, next to nothing for rent. I really loved the sense of community Mm -hmm. that seemed to be there to kind of help each other out when things were not easy, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting to get those full stories uh, in those interviews, like the trajectory, I guess, of these individuals um, is super interesting. And, you know, that was something I wanted to ask you about as well. Having, you know, have, having had these personal connections to this topic and having, you know, read this book, it, the interviews and whatnot, and like you said, someone that's a little bit more detached, uh, we're doing these interviews. So having Combs back through everything, were there any stories or perspectives in these interviews that surprised you? Hmm. Uh That's a
0: good question.
1: I think the biggest
0: surprises were the ways that the stories can really wove themselves together. Uh, I was surprised at how many people had really similar backgrounds and maybe didn't talk about it as much. And I'd say that was probably one of the bigger surprises. I knew a lot of the stories that people were telling and some of the ones they were gonna tell but the way that they were framed and the things that were framed in the ways that the questions were asked I thought were really interesting yeah I liked how the questions that the interviewers had asked Lauren uh Lauren andsaldo my wife uh had asked Lauren about the house itself you know the purchase of the house and how that worked and how scary that was uh for you know us to really jump in there and and do this so you know that was something that was it was neat i was glad that that was able to get preserved in for posterity but also i like to hear a lot of the stories that uh the stories that gabe told i mean were just funny i, mean, I just really really laughed a lot at that and you know and i like to hear about how he when he first moved over here how it was difficult for him to to really find acceptance you know with a lot of the people here and uh in the Southern Punk scene, you know, but then also found it quickly with the folks over at Three Hundred Nine. In my experience at Three Hundred Nine, that that was generally the case. That as long as you were nice and you were a participant in what was going on in the house, then you were widely accepted by by the folks over there. And it wasn't universal, too. I mean, some not every experience is great. And and these are fifteen. You know, we did fifteen interviews. Thirteen made it in the book. And at one point, I counted that I had at least 75 roommates in the time that I lived there and possibly as many as 100 uh, and surely there was well over 100 people that lived in the house at various times. So if you have 15 stories, 13 are recorded in the book and then, uh, yeah, and then we have yeah, you know, hun- uh, dozens at least you know maybe over a hundred more stories that are floating around everybody could tell a totally different story for the house but uh, uh i'll say actually one other piece that surprised me a bit was the uh, terry johnson's stories i thought terry johnson had some really interesting stories about coming to pensacola her getting interested in punk but then i had no idea that she was involved in the uh, not fault. I mean, she was in school during the race riots over in in Escambia County. They had this big deal over here in in Pensacola when there was the one of the high schools here, Escambia High School had the rebel flag as their as their school flag, <laughs> uh, and then also had the the Confederate rebel as their motto or, or not motto but the you know as the what do you call it? The person represents the school, whatever it is. Anyway, their uh, their mascot uh, was the was the rebel, so they have the rebel as the mascot, the rebel flag, and it ended up causing these race riots. It went on for a number of years, not continuously, of course, but uh, various instances that happened that caused those to continue. And I didn't know that she was in them, and those are pretty big. I mean, you see it in the little footnote at the in the book, but it's. Uh, there's some people that were shot in there. Quarterback for the football team was shot. And eventually they were like, this has gone on too far. Now it's the Scambia County Gators. <laughs> so they just went in and changed it to an alligator. And it's like, ah, they got over it. So just when all those things come up, when people say, how will people remember the history? Or we need to keep these things up here forever. It's like, yeah, they get over it. <laughs> no one talks about it. No, There's no movement to change it back to the Rebels, or to my knowledge. So, uh, so anyway, I didn't know that Terry was involved with that. And I also didn't know them. Even though I know a lot of most of the pipebomb song songs, and you know, I've heard him so many times and been to a million of the shows for this bike as a pipebomb, I didn't realize that her actual history in that part of the civil rights movement was uh, was the inspiration for her interest in Black history, and also the interest for a lot of the songs that they have in the in the band. Because if you listen to a lot of their music. And remember, the band also formed in the house too. So if you listen to a lot of their music, that a lot of it has to do with civil rights, uh, black struggle in America, and and going back to historical times too. So historical, like a hundred years back, sometimes everything from Ramoody's song about Jack Johnson uh, to uh, the their version of the song "Strange Fruit" to uh, many many other you know songs, Black Panther song, uh, many things you know are tied in with the civil rights movements in in united states but then also in particular in the south and i didn't realize that terry's personal experiences were part of that influence
1: yeah that's really interesting and he made me think about you know you were just talking about the songs and i was with the, all these creative individuals that were in this house sort of in and out what other kind of interesting creative outputs have you seen come from that house right like What, what are some interesting examples of like tattoos, for instance, that have been your favorite from (laughs) Uh, the artists there, you know, or uh artworks or, you know, what, what kind of creative endeavors have been some of your favorite like highlights, if you will, from that house.
0: (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, uh, well, the bands, of course, are one of the biggest things Uh, we talk about the bands briefly in the book, but they really don't make as big an appearance as as one might think. Uh, But the band the spikes of pipe bomb is clearly the biggest band that came out of the house. And, and, Probably arguably the one of the biggest bands that came out of Pensacola too. Not just in the punk scene, but it, I can't think of another band in Pensacola that that did anything more like that. I mean, we have old bands, and we have bands that have been around for a long time, and and older bands from the jazz era. But this bike's Piedmont traveled the whole country. They became international superstars on some levels. And I traveled with them once. I went on tour with them once. Uh, down to the bottom of Florida and up to the east coast of Florida and uh, the east coast of the, uh, the US up to New York City when I got off the uh, got off the tour and, and hung out with Aaron up there. But in that time, I was really shocked to see how popular they were. Uh, Rymo D had just released a solo record while we were out there and we played a show in Miami and every kid in that room knew every single word to this record and they were singing along with all these songs and that blew my mind uh, that it could be released that quickly and that everybody is almost like they're studying for this big exam and we're just ready just to jump in but it was pretty amazing to see that so and that was the case for just about every every place we went to some shows were a little better than others but overall it was just a wild enthusiasm Uh, for that band. Uh, So that would be one. Uh, Also the band, the blank fight. uh, That was a little bit of our super group. It was part of a house band feud where unfair stacked. (laughs) Uh, The the cards were stacked against everybody, all the other uh, punk houses in the area. So everyone else had these bands where they started with homemade banjos or maybe we're beating on pickle buckets and trying to do something and then you got this band with uh aaron comet as the drummer you know he's been in crimshine and uh astrodoto and tons of other bands and cindy doris who is in astrodoto and scott cowgill who is in uh, headless marines and wooden horse and Rymo D from the spikes of pipe Bomb, of course uh and they're <laughs> it became a super group very quickly and they did they didn't do a lot of touring but they did some touring and they have a really really good record check it out so musically i would say it. those are the big ones uh for my time but otherwise i'd say the art that people do in the house is really beautiful there's a lot of artists this one guy uh, jay martin who does some incredible paintings is really really impressive portrait artist some of his work uh, is you know is astronomical um you know, and then uh, the zines that came out of the house. A lot of the literature and writing. Uh, I'm thinking, in particular, of uh, of uh, Sarah Derelict, that's what she called herself, Sarah Hill. Sarah she wrote the zine called. Uh, it was called Ghetto Youth and then had another name uh, that I can't remember the name of it, uh, but she had a, a couple of zines that she wrote over the years. And it, uh, in her writing, I always thought it was really fantastic. Another person, Andy Gurr, three R's. Uh, she was a really prolific writer and she wrote tremendous stuff all, all the time. It was great. Uh, we had a solo uh, singer songwriter guy who was living in the house. He recently died right before the, before uh, the, yeah, actually, right right around the time that COVID started. Uh, it wasn't related to COVID, but he died. He was actually supposed to be interviewed in the book, but he wasn't doing too well health-wise. And, uh, and I took his place. That's the only reason why I'm in the book, is because he wasn't doing well. Uh, and uh, he ended up dying uh, early on. His picture's in the book. Uh, Kent Stanton is his name. He has incredible presence on YouTube. You can get into the wormhole of Kent's beautiful music and just sit around and listen to Ken all the time. I I'll listen to him a lot. Uh, Yeah, but uh, but besides that, I'd uh, say there's a number of other things. The oh, you mentioned the tattoos. I'll just say leave it with the tattoos. That everybody has a lot of stupid tattoos in the house, and that's kind of what it is to be a punk. That sometimes you have really beautiful tattoos, and but often you have really dumb ones. A friend of ours, he was not living at the house, but he was uh, adjacent to our scene, and he worked over at Hula Moon, and he was learning how to do tattoos and they called over to the house. Hulu Moon called over to the house and asked and said, hey, Jeremy's learned to do tattoos. Anybody want to get any stupid ideas and don't mind if they suck? <laughs> and I always wanted to get a black flag tattoo. So said, sure. So I went over there and I got my black flag tattoo. And uh, what I thought was funny was I was asking him as he's doing the black flag tattoo on my arm. I asked him, so this is, how many tattoos have you done so far, Jeremy? And said, well, this is my eighth tattoo. I said, oh, okay, it's my eighth tattoo, but it's my third black flag tattoo. <laughs> so I haven't done only eight tattoos and nearly half of them are black flag tattoos. I thought it was funny. Uh, but, uh, but it's still one of my favorite tattoos. Uh, but we have this one tattoo that we have and so many of the folks over here at 309, but also within the punk scene in Pensacola, and people that are adjacent to it get, and that's a water tower tattoo. And that came from, when uh, Aaron was was moving from Pensacola, he's moving back up to New York, and Aaron and I were going to get matching tattoos, and we were trying to think of something that was uh, the quintessential punk representative of Pensacola, and we we're trying to think of one thing that really represented Pensacola in our punk scene, and that one thing that we knew was so representative of Pensacola was, yep, you guessed it whataburger uh so so aaron and i gave ourselves stick and poke whataburger tattoos (laughs) and they uh, I guess we were too scared to go too far and and, uh, and they washed away in two days. So the stick and poke tattoo of whatever you didn't last very long. And then later we're thinking, so what should we do? It <laughs> would be another one. And then we thought, oh, you know, we have this zine imprint that we've been doing for a little while. This thing called Sub City Series that Aaron talks about in the book and and our, the logo for our little... Uh, zine imprint. And that was kind of cool too. We did these z- zines that were uh, the Italian fascist, anti fascist compendium, or African literature, uh, the zine, or um, uh, Noam Chomsky pamphlet that we reprinted, and then a book of Langston Hughes' radical poetry. You know, it's a bunch of different things that were just random things that we just liked a lot. But the symbol was this water tower, and the image was a water tower that was on fire because it symbolized all of our. Stupid ideas. You know, it's like trying to set a glass of water on fire. (laughs) Uh, So here we are, setting the water tower on fire. But interesting, size. Oh, anyway, we end up getting uh, that tattoo. We end up getting that tattoo uh so aaron and i got that but then also uh ramody and jen went to go get the tattoos as well so the four of us got that tattoo right then and then eventually a couple other people got them and i think around 50 people have them now so 50 different people have that water tower tattoo they got it with different variations all of them look a little bit different uh, my wife uh they joke with her they used to joke with her at work and say hers looks like a like a, a grill <laughs> like you cook them with a cookout grill and said oh he must really love cookouts huh?" <laughs> and said so, no no but uh, but one little side story on that there was this one uh, kid who was part of our punk scene and he was in the navy and he wrote this zine and the zine was critical of the war over in iraq and, but he was in the navy active duty so he goes he sent station over in japan and he wrote this uh, the zine, and he had pictures of the water tower tattoos in there, and he wrote something kind of funny that a lot of punks would put in their pieces, like you know, just like destroy this, you know. And I mean, it's just like one of those, those uh, stereotypical images of punk. You know, it's like destroy, destroy this. So he wrote destroy the water tower on there. Well, he got in trouble for the zine because he also was criticizing George Bush and Dick Cheney and the war and stuff. Uh, so he got in trouble for the zine and. uh they end up making this really, really big investigation on him. He has a really thick file (laughs) uh, that he had. So he did this, and they are investigating. They're asking all sorts of questions. He gave it to me. Let me see it. It's in our archives. If anybody wants to check it out? I think it's really fascinating reading. uh But in there, you know, he had, uh, he made him uh, make this big statement in there uh, that says, among other things, that are <laughs> really interesting to read. uh But one of the things, this, the Pensacola punks do not have any plans to destroy the water tower. The tattoo is is uh, is sarcastic. Sarcastic means that, he, that they don't actually intend to do any destruction. uh The water tower tattoo is meant as a joke. That's all. <laughs> In there, so I just think it's kind of funny that in some NCIS file uh, somewhere that somebody had to write that up, and that our tattoos are in there. So, so if we didn't think we had files. We certainly do. <laughs> I got proof. We have it in our in our archives. So feel free to check it out.
1: Yeah, y'all have files, and <laughs> <laughs> that's intense oh, yeah. we have over files. an iconic. <laughs> what? Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was really interesting, and I wanted to kind of leave here at the end, you know, some wiggle room for you to kind of talk about, you know, was there anything else, in other words, with the book that we haven't already touched on mm-hmm. that you think would be important for our listeners to understand? Uh, yeah, sure, I'll
0: send it with this. That you know, the book is definitely about punk. and People are gonna pick it up because it's a yeah, you know, it's about punk. It's about a punk house and all that. So that part's undeniable, uh, and it's certainly about Pensacola too. Uh, That it's one of, yeah, I tried to count this, so forgive me if I'm wrong about this, but I think it's around over just a little more than a dozen academic books on Pensacola, at least books that are published by academic presses. Uh, That are on Pensacola, which is interesting too, because Pensacola is technically the oldest city in, or the oldest civilization, civilization, the right word, but uh, it's the oldest European colonization, colonized, you know what I'm saying. Anyway, (laughs) it's the oldest attempted European colonization in in what we now call the United States. There's the line I was looking for. Uh, so it's the oldest attempted at European colonization, what we now call the United States. Most people think of St. Augustine, but that's this one uh, little sticking point that everybody here in Pensacola has. Like, we were first, but they blew us away with a hurricane. Uh, and just like almost so many people in Pensacola, we uh, are, even our history gets blown away with the hurricanes. So it didn't work. And then St. Augustine got founded a couple of years later. You know, so uh, so it, but anyway, it's about uh, which is odd though that we're one of the only academic books on Pensacola, so it's just a total field for any academics who want to dig into Pensacola's really interesting history, uh, too, which oddly is net hardly ever touched. You look in history books on the South or sometimes even Florida, and you look in the index, and is not even listed, like it just doesn't exist. Uh, so what I think is hilarious about this is that in 100 years from now, if we as human beings still survive in 100 years, uh, but if we as sur- human beings survive another 100 years, uh, when they look at the history of Pensacola, there will be the Spanish conquistador, Don Tristan de Luna, the Civil War and the abolitionist movement uh, and there will be <laughs> the incredible punk scene in Pensacola and that 's kinda it, <laughs> you know so I think of all the things to represent uh, Pensacola I think it 's hilarious that one of them is is punk <laughs> and certainly the only history of punk in in this area there's a recent book that came out too on the gay riviera that is uh, a good bit about pensacola but it's mostly about uh, about Fort Walton beach in that area but it still touches on pensacola so but this is the only one that's specifically with pensacola uh, but that said it's also a history of of what it's like to be a punk in the south you know so if you want to extend that further too this is what it's like to be a punk in the south this is what it's like to be uh, a uh a person who doesn't fit in a square peg in in the in the in the circular holes of the south I say that phrase right but it's a yeah' just to be a freak down here you know that it's kind of hard to be in the counterculture and this goes back your know, way in yeah you know, into the 60s into the 50s i have this LP in my house that it's these beat poets over in Tampa, Florida, and you could almost feel the awkwardness of, of these beat poets who nobody's ever heard of before uh, reading all their beatnik poetry over there in Tampa as they're trying to create uh, an Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac reality for them in that, in that place. But all these, Southern towns, all these places have these countercultures. They're just rarely, they're not recorded as much. You know, Tallahassee, of course, you know, they get it a little bit more because you have the college uh, and you have a pretty rich history over there, too, of uh, a lot of these countercultures. That you know, When you think of Pensacola, but also a lot of the South and Southern cities, we're often defined by our, our electoral politics. Yeah, you know, we have uh, some interesting politicians. and I'll leave it at that. Uh, down over here in this part of the uh, this <laughs> in this part of the country, uh, yeah, overall, and uh, but you look at the demographics and the people that vote and how all this stuff works. That I mean, it, it would be odd in any other setting to assume that that's totally representative of what the what the people want, you know, or what the people or what the people actually are, you know, when you have a vote that happens and thirteen percent of the population is you know speaks for the other. 87% you know, through through a voting thing but you know, through our voting thing our electoral process but we are often you know, viewed in those in that context and i think it's wrong uh, to look at it like that that we certainly are that you know Pensacola is definitely a conservative town in a lot of ways but it's a lot of other things too and just like every other southern town there's a lot of other things and we're part of that uh those other things of what uh what it is uh, to be in the south and and this book is as much about being a punk in the South as it is about being a freak in the South, or being somebody who just doesn't fit into the larger counterculture, but still survives and still finds community and still finds your people because your people are out there. And that's one of the things I really hope that people take away from this: is uh, you know, if you're a punk and you pick it up and you like it, I think that's really awesome. Uh, but also, I think that if you're somebody who just doesn't fit in and you're lo- and you're wondering where your people are, it's like your people are around you. You just have to look, and sometimes your people find you. And sometimes randomly you find them, up. but once you find them, then it changes your life and it can be some of the most beautiful stuff in the world. And uh, all of us, you know, who lived in the house and I'll say, come back to one of your other questions. I'll end at this the, probably the biggest thing that surprised me was almost to the person, every single person that was asked, would they do it again? Would they move back into the house? And everybody, despite all of their negative uh, stories all of their uh, bad uh, impressions at different times the uh, gross stories uh, uh, many many things all the reasons not to do it everyone said yeah i do it again i moved back in and that speaks highly of not just the house itself you know but also speaks highly of the community beautiful people all of cool the
1: yeah i love that and you know thank you so much for leaving us with those excellent takeaways and appreciate you coming on the new books network and talking with me today. Um, I want to ask you uh, what else are you working on these days? Hmm. Well, this is taking
0: up quite a bit of my time, <laughs> you know, so uh, not only with the, now that the book is out, you yeah, know, we're going, Aaron and I are going on a promotional tour with this and we're hitting all sorts of cities throughout the South. We're going to Oxford, Mississippi, Mobile, Huntsville, Knoxville, uh, Savannah, Georgia, Jacksonville, Orlando, Gainesville, and then your beautiful city of Tallahassee, which has a pretty close connection to, uh, to our Punksy. We have a lot of interchangeable folks and a lot of people dying to escape the small town of Pensacola, moved over to Tallahassee, and then sometimes came back over here We're a little bit of a vortex where people end up coming back, you know, uh, despite uh, their attempts to try and get away. Every once in a while, somebody succeeds in disappearing, but uh, but rarely do they. So um, so that you know, some of the stuff. But I do a lot of other things too. You know, I write for a weekly paper over here, and my interests you know are a lot of things. Right now, it's you know really consumed with punk, but uh, I also do a lot of writing on. Uh, on racial justice issues, I do a lot of writing on the abolitionist movement, and uh, one of the bigger projects that I'm slowly piecing together is a little bit of a people's history of Pensacola uh, to offer that other side of the story. And that goes back to the to the conquistadors and uh, how the story often forgets the that there are 500 Aztecs that came along with them, and then maybe as many Africans that were there that are often left out of those stories. Uh, then it goes into the really brilliant uh, work uh at- it ties on with the brilliant work of Professor Matt Clavin over in, over in the University of Houston. He did a book recently called The Battle of Negro Fort, which is over in Apalachicola. It's this really lost story. He described it once as the Gettysburg of slave revolts. Uh, so I'm working on uh, some stuff that ties in with that as well, but lots of other stuff too. you know. So anyway, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of things. I, uh, I got my fingers in a number of, uh, number of different academic intellectual pots, but this one right here has been most fun. And then I'll just also just end with the 309 Punk Project has really been the great great thing what we hope to do with this book is uh, help show people what the 309 punk project is what we're doing people can check us out on their website on our websites 309 punk project uh, dot org and we have a lot of different projects a lot of different artists that are coming through and with this book it's supposed to be our as if we do this release it's going to be our grand opening for the 309 punk project too so we were shut down because of covid we couldn't do anything for a while but now uh we're figuring out ways just like everyone else is figuring out ways to move on and to and to survive and to do the things that punks are meant to do which is stay punk <laughs>
1: Hell yes, do it. <laughs> Hell yes, <Do> it. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll have to. I'll look forward to following the project's development over the you know coming months, and see you all when you come to Tallahassee at some point. And yeah, everything. absolutely. But thank you so much for talking with us today.
0: Oh, indeed, I really appreciate I Emily. Mean, these are really great questions, and thanks a lot for uh, for letting me talk. Hopefully, I didn't talk too much, but that's that's my job right no. now. <laughs> I go into teacher mode no. sometimes, and <laughs> that's what
1: I do. <laughs> no, it's great. And, you know, listeners, thank you for joining us as well. Um, and just to kind of give you a quick recap, uh, this was an interview with Scott Satterwhite, one of the authors of A Punk House in the Deep South, The Oral History of 309, co-authored with Aaron Commentbus and published by the University Press of Florida in 2021. And this is your host, Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network.